Good morning, Sarepta. That's a sound check as well as a genuine greeting. Nice to see you all. And uh, it has been for me also an absolute pleasure and privilege to be among you again. I was wondering what I said wrong last time, that you didn't invite me back for two years. No, it's not true. It was, it was a couple of circumstantial things that actually interrupted my, um, my usual annual visits to you. Uh, one of them being a um, detached retina, just when we were on our way uh, to come to KZN. And um, so I was unable to fly and move and uh, all of that kind of thing. So um, I learned some uh, lessons while my vision was recuperating. But before I go to um, lessons, let me share with you. I noticed yesterday that there is a cultural breakdown in this church. And that is that you do not appreciate the, um, the Afrikaans culture. You don't, you don't even understand the language. I was... I was really? You did? Did anybody understand what was said? So I, I want to share with you, and it does also illustrate something I want to say. I want to share with you an essay written by a young man, an eight-year-old, by the name of Pitt Janse van Rensburg. And it was an essay he was given to write in English, his second language, and the subject was, What is a Crocodile? And so here is his essay. The crocodile is a specially, that's two words, a specially built so long, because the flatter, the better swimmer. At the front of the crocodile is the head. The head exists almost only of teeth. Behind the crocodile, the tail grows. Between the head and the tail is the crocodile. A crocodile without a tail is called a Rottweiler. A crocodile's body is covered with handbag material. He can throw his tail off if he gets a fright. But it doesn't happen much because a crocodile is scared of nothing. A crocodile stays under the water because if you were so ugly, you would also stay under the water. It is good that the crocodile stays under the water because a person gets such a big fright if a crocodile catches you that he first has to rinse you off before he can eat you. Do not linger too long on that picture. A crocodile isn't hardly as dangerous as people say he is, except if he catches you. The longer he bites you, the more it hurts. Very old crocodiles suck the people then and buck that they catch dead. If you eat him, he is a crocosati. A crocodile did not learn to swim with his arms, so he uses his tail. The little brother of the crocodile is a lizard. The slow sister of the crocodile is a chameleon. The gay brother of the crocodile is a daffodil. And the crocodile also has a dead brother, the fricadelle. Pit Janse van Rensburg. <laughs> Definitely would have given him 100% for that. <laughs> so, I want to um, kind of, it's, it's a little bit of a change of subject, although it may sound like an application of some of the things we've shared this weekend. Um, I want to just ha have a reality check. How many different cultures do we have in the room here today. Um, call out if you have a culture other than English South African or English speaking South African of many generations. If you're other than that, if you also have another culture like, you know, Greek, which is the culture everyone else aspires to, um, 
or uh, anything like that. Anyone? Yes. Canadian and France. Afrikaans. Afrikaans. Did I say? Did I say Afrikaans? And we have Danish. What else? Tosa. Hey, welcome. You see, these are the people from the Cape where I come from. Zulu. Jewish. Very good. Dutch. Shona. Afrikaans. Indian. Mauritian. You didn't realize what riches you have in this room. So it's good for us to stop and celebrate that from time to time. But I want to talk a little bit about living the kingdom and how that shapes a culture. Because I want to say, I think that apart from the spiritual challenges that we face in this country, we face a massive um, challenge which actually is, it's a life and death struggle. And that is to, to discover a culture that can transcend the cultures that divide us, the cultures that alienate us, the, the cultures that we feel so precious about that we hold on to them more than we hold on to relationship. Um, and... and Essentially, what I want to say is that the kingdom of God is that hope. The kingdom of God is a culture in and of itself. So we're going to have a little look at what that culture looks like because it is in the transcendence of the kingdom of God, the culture of the kingdom of God, that we will find something that unites us, that gives us a sense of belonging, that that um, gives us a sense of belonging together with others who are different from us or who would be different if it were not for that culture. You see, um, when you read on from the beginning of the story of the gospel and you end up in Acts, in the book of Acts, you find that one of the first things that... that, um, it was, it was very deliberate of God that he birthed the church in a melting pot of cultures. And there were people there from every uh, nation, every ethnic group surrounding Jerusalem who had been in some way uh, exposed to the worship of the one true God. And so had come to Jerusalem for a feast, a, a religious feast. And while they were there, um, heard the gospel, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out on some people and they began to speak their languages. And, and so something amazing happened and all of these people were thrown into the pot. And so we have this, um, this integration. By the time Acts chapter 15 comes, they learn how to integrate the cultures around the faith that they had um, discovered. Culture, what is culture? Culture is a picture, um, or it has been defined in terms of seven mountains. Mountains of culture, or pillars, if you like, of culture. And they are government, arts, business, education, family, media, and religion. Those seven things are the structures and the, um, the uh, channels through which we interact with the world around us. We're not going to go into detail. I've just given some examples there of what, um, of what those pillars or those mountains hold. There are, if you like, caves or niches in those mountains, and each of them uh, represents a different way in which in that particular sphere we participate, we hear, we understand, we interact, we adopt, um, and sometimes we adjust a little bit. We adjust so that we can get along. We learn a different language, for example, so that we can get along in a different culture if you've emigrated from one to another. You come 
to a place and maybe Shona is the only language you speak and then you, ha- you come to a place where English is the prevailing language and so you, I'm, using, I'm not saying that is the case, but it can be the case. We, um, we have to adapt. These are spheres of what we call social cohesion. They are the things we hold in common, the things we hold dear, the ways of speaking, the ways of dressing, the ways of eating, the food we eat, the the, the way our soul comes alive in certain uh, contexts or when a particular kind of music is played. I'm, I'm uh, confessing a little bit about what happens to me when I go to Greece. My soul comes alive at a totally different level. And I find, I find uh, a place. But if I exclusively lived in that place, I would miss so many others. I would miss so many other places of connecting and belonging. As I've traveled, I've been to probably about 40 different countries over the years, and, and in each one, I try to um, experience the culture. So I like to stay with people rather than in hotels. I like to eat the food. I want to eat the food that people there eat. Um, I want to uh, experience the way that families interact, that people interact. And uh, it in, every one of those enriches me. Everyone adds something to my self-awareness as well as my awareness of the brilliant diversity, the creativity of the Creator. So there are ways of Connecting, social cohesion, cooperation, constructing societies uh, happen around these seven mountains. And, uh, of course, mountains in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, represent another thing. They represent principalities. It's very easy for culture to become a principality. It's very easy for one of these spheres of culture, one of these pillars of culture to become uh, demonic. We experienced that for 50 years in this country. Well, we experienced for longer than that, but in a structured way, we created, our people created a culture called apartheid. And in that culture was power, the exercise of power for the oppression of others, for the enrichment of self, for the, for the preferment of one kind of people or one people group above every other. That's what cultures do. By the way, today is, or yesterday I believe, was Holocaust Remembrance Day. There's a brilliant example of how a culture became demonic to the point of exterminating six million people to the point of wanting to completely eliminate that people group from the face of the earth. What is that? That's not something that belongs within the normal shape of humanity. It's something demonic. It's something that, we give out, that people give themselves to, and as a result of giving themselves to that, it becomes more and more evil, more and more distorted, until you can hardly see the image of God at all in the face of that kind of behavior or that kind of thinking. David, in Psalm 121, verse 1, as he is um, contemplating the, the principalities around him, says, I, look, I lift up my eyes toward the mountains. The mountains are not going to help me. The mountains are not the source of my help. A lot of people misquote that text, by the way, and say, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. It's not a statement, it's a question. The question is, does my help come from there? Does my help come from my culture? Does the possibility of success and survival and transcendence and... um, the ability to change my world and the ability to provide a good place for my kids, does that come from my culture? Does it come from my education? Does it come from my government? Does it come from the 
the, my family even? Does it come from things that our family has always done for many years? Does it come from those? David says, no. My help is from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who in fact made the mountains of culture and is happy for the fact that there is such diversity. He will never let your foot slip, nor will your guardian become drowsy. And he goes on to talk about the fact that at the same time as guarding you and preserving you and saving you and wanting to uphold you and help you to survive, God is also in the business of changing you. I said it yesterday, I believe. God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. There is a mind-altering substance in the room right now. It is the Spirit of God who wants to pervade your, even the cell structure of your body. Who wants to get through the gaps between you and your self-awareness. Your ability to respect yourself, to esteem yourself. He wants to, he wants to get between those things and show you healthy self-love without pride. Healthy celebration of the good things of your culture without making those into a reason for division. That's called the kingdom of God. So, I want you to bear with me for a moment because I'm going to do a heretical thing, which is that I'm going to read you Matthew chapter 5 in the Costa's adapted version. The CAV. Costa's Easy English Adapted Version. That's even more of a mouthful. So here it is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And you can either read along with me now and check that I'm not distorting the text. Or you can read it afterwards and I will let you have uh, this printout so that you can double check and triple check and um, bring me before the elders. When Jesus saw the crowds, this is the story of when Jesus did, and let me preface it with this. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up a mountain. He's thinking about mountains. He climbs a mountain, and people follow him up the mountain, and he says, now while we're at this mountain, I want to tell you about a new culture. I want to introduce to you something that is going to tear down some principalities. It's called, by some commentators, the Manifesto of the Kingdom of God, this this sermon, it's called the Sermon on the Mount popularly, but that's what it was. So here's, here's Jesus. He's in the, on the mountain, and he saw the crowds, and he went up on the hill or mountain, and taking his seat, after taking his seat, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, now listen up. This is how immigration into my kingdom is going to change you and your culture. Your blessedness, your happiness will be based not on having things, but on being destitute, poor in spirit, dependent on grace. Knowing this is what will open the kingdom from heaven to you. Your mourning will be turned to dancing. Your laughter will heal your sadness. Your humility will be rewarded with huge influence. You will, in fact, inherit the earth. You will find joy in constant hunger and thirst for doing the right thing, living as a, holy, as a truly good person. Which hunger will often be satisfied along the way? You will be a constant giver and receiver of mercy, receiving and showing my love. And in exchange for singleness of heart, you will constantly, increasingly, and finally see God. You will find joy in being artists of peace. And when people see your work, they'll say, you paint just like your dad. Even persecution for righteous behavior won't dim your joy because you'll know our side wins in the end. So don't stress when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely accuse you of evil because you follow and testify about your love for me. Rejoice. Dance a jig when that happens because your reward in heaven is growing every time it happens. And you're in great company. Check the prophets who came before you. You're going to flavor the world with divine spice. 
So stay spicy. Always be amazing. Live on the edge. Don't let the current culture rob you of flavor and trample you under its feet. You're going to light up the world, so shine. Stand up where you can be seen. Bloom where you have been planted. People will see your good actions, and your Father in heaven will be applauded for how he changed losers into truly good people. Because I tell you, this is going to be a new way of living by a new set of standards that will make religious people jealous. This will qualify you for all the benefits of the kingdom from heaven, both in this life and ultimately in the life to come. Here are some examples of how kingdom culture will differ. Listen carefully. You will will live way beyond the narrow set of rules set by religious people. You will live not by less than, but more than those rules. Not merely abstaining from evil, but doing good. Remember how you were told to be good in actions, like don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet things that belong to others. Well, I'm saying something more than that. Your heart attitudes are going to change. So you won't even be able to, ins- you won't even be able to insult or hold grudges against anyone. You will hold marriage in the highest esteem, not seeing it as an easy-come, easy-go arrangement of convenience, but as a precious and sacred covenant. You will exchange violent reactions by word or deed for gentleness and grace, forgiveness and peaceability. When anyone borrows or steals from you, you'll consider it a gift. That's what he said. Not insisting on rights, but seeking to bless whether soldier, friend, enemy, or needy person. You're going to be chips off the old block, and you're going to make dad proud. What Jesus said at the time was radical. It was... It was... uh, It it crashed into... The, the pride that people in that, in that uh, church service felt about their own culture. And it was the thing that followed not only Jesus, but it followed the apostles, for, certainly for the rest of Paul's life, way up till the mid-60s after Christ, A.D. And caused, they lost their lives because of it. They lost their lives because people still were going, no, 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 our culture is better. And so here you have some new message, but we still wanted to be clothed like we, you know, dressed like we dress and think like we think and act like we act. And, and for goodness sake, don't, don't disturb the religious neighborhood. Don't be, don't be so different. And when the, when the Greeks came in, they said, okay, now you've got to become Jews. When the uh, Africans came in, they said, now you've got to become Jews. They, they wanted to impose a particular human culture, although they had sancti- sanctified that human culture and made it a um, divine culture. And that was probably... Um, Understandable if, they, if you have, had made the Jewish culture into the end of the story. So Jesus comes in and he says, you think that that's the end of the story? Here's the beginning of a new one. That religion was good as far as it went. It held people in check. It, was, it, was, uh, it, it created order. And, uh, but now I say to you, This is going further. This is going deeper. This is going to change you. And so let's have a look at how kingdom culture is subversive and radically different. First of all, Jesus says, and you can again read all of these in chapter 6 and 7, but uh, he says, first of all, you will become a person who is self-forgetful in your responses to others. Instead of saying, I, at the beginning of every response, you will think otherly. 
you will be self-forgetful. It worries me deeply that so many of us, are. the first response we have is about our, our own. Can I speak very frankly for a moment? If we don't stop thinking about our whiteness, we will never survive what's coming in this country. If we don't stop thinking about our blackness, well, if we, if we, if we, don't, if we, stop, if we don't stop allowing the culture of apartheid to shape the way we read ourselves and others, we are doomed. The church will become an irrelevance if we don't say we have to be deliberately focused on others. We have to deliberately focus on dying to ourselves and our culture so that another culture can supersede it. This culture of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, speaking in general terms here, you will stop worrying about your life when this, when this kingdom has invaded your space. You will stop worrying about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, or about your safety, or about your comfort, or about your uh, neat neighborhood, or about your, uh, your, um, uh, uh, the old-fashioned ways of doing things. You will stop making those things your priorities. You will become self-forgetful. You will have no fear of those things being disrupted. But you will hold them lightly. And you will be self-forgetful concerning your own interests. Which leads us to the second point. You will be heaven-focused in terms of your investment of time and money. Time and energy and money, rather. Time and energy and money. Jesus says, don't store up in, in, in the banks, don't store up here on earth treasures, but store it, you will. You will remember, you, you've noticed here that I'm, uh, I've changed every um, uh, verb into an uh, indicative rather than an imperative, because that's the way, I did share that with you last time I was here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that you can obey. It's not something that you can go, oh, well, that's a great set of rules. Let me force myself to live by them. That's just bad news, guys. It's based on pride. It's based on people thinking that I can save myself. That's why God said, uh, I have to tell you something. The old kind of covenant is not working. So I'm going to make a new kind of covenant with you. A covenant where you will no longer, each one teach his neighbor, you ought, you should, you must, you have to. But where I will change your, you from the inside out so that you will want to and you will, uh, because of what I put inside you, you will spontaneously become a different kind of person. That's why I preface all of these with, you will. You're gonna. You're gonna get to. You will store up treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You will, you will begin to look forward rather to eternal rewards than to immediate ones. You'll become a long-term, uh, you'll hold a long view of life and its returns. And, ju and just when you were, you were really, really, really saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shift my stocks and shares into, you know, making it more uh, 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 sort of available so that I can be involved in changing the world, Steinhoff collapsed. Steinhoff, it's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, it's a big multinational corporation that, uh, that collapsed. And so all kinds of people lost their pensions. 
Many people lost a high percentage of their um, investments and the returns on their investments. Thankfully, I didn't have enough money to ever put it into Steinhoff. Because you see, the problem with investment is that most of us are not disinterested enough in things like our possessions, our money, our investment and the interest on our investment. And so we're, we're paying more attention to that and it's consuming us and it's causing, it's causing us to, to live by a different set of values. And so Jesus is saying here, you're going to live by a different set of values. Thirdly, you're going to cultivate in yourself and in the family and the environment in which you live a peaceful and vulnerable orientation environment. You won't let worry shape you, but mostly by God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's a translation of Matthew 6 verse 33. Seek first. Have as your number one priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't let worry replace that as your, as your priority. And these other things will take care of themselves. And I know Westerners, Westerners don't like that kind of thinking. They think that's lazy and irresponsible thinking. But Jesus was serious. He wasn't kidding when he said, you know what, guys? I've got this. The king really is an active, powerful, sovereign, uh, supernatural power that will actually cause your life to get into shape. Even though you fall, you will not be cast down because I will uphold you with my right hand. Steps of good people will be ordered by this king. We've forgotten that, you see, because we have bought into a culture, in the West particularly, of the self-made man. I'm a self-made man. I've got a brother who says that to me all the time. I'm a self-made man. I don't need no God. Cool. Let's see how, how, how that works out for you. As the things that self-made people have made for themselves actually collapse more and more and more and more. They lean on them and they fall over, pierce their hand. So Jesus is saying, don't worry, be happy, no stress, no worries, mate. Right? Every culture has got a no worries kind of a clause. And Jesus said that's got to be the prevailing thing when it comes to your possessions. So self-forgetfulness about yourself and your culture. Heaven-focused in terms of your stuff, your time and your energy. And no worries when it comes to your um, being able to cope with the challenges of daily life. And then this is a biggie. This is one that I've been, the Lord hasn't allowed me to get off this particular topic for the last year and a half. Being proactively generous in your interactions with others. What does he mean by that? He means taking initiative in terms of giving more than you were asked for. And giving more than you ask or expect of others. You know how we do this in marriage. If you be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. It's called measuring cup love. I mean, in the bad old days, we used to, people used to say stuff like this. Well, if my husband loves me as Christ loved the church, then I will submit to him. <laughs> You're reading one another's mail. That's not even nice. Stop reading one another's mail. God doesn't say to you, make sure that your wife submits to you as a man. It's not addressed to you. It's rude to read that. 
That's her mail. So your job is to lay down your life for your wife to the point that you forget yourself. Lay down your life. And you go, and what do I get? As soon as you're thinking that you're no longer in kingdom culture, you're back in Western culture. I demand respect. Jesus says, don't worry about respect. I'll, I'll take care of that. Hey, what? Hey? <laughs> Woo! Thank you, Alan. Why did it take you so long? Ah, yes. So, being proactively generous. That is giving without expectation. That is outdoing one another in showing honor. That is when someone says, Hey, because you're inferior to me, you carry this bag for 1,200 paces. That was what they called a stadia, a, a, a Roman mile. When anyone commands you, as Roman soldiers were entitled to do, to carry his bag for him for 1,200 paces. And what normal Jewish youngsters would do is that they would resentfully take the bag and then they would start pacing out. One, two, three. 1,198, 1,098. 199, 1,200, look for a deep ditch and throw the bag into it and run. Why? Because I resent the fact that you made me carry it. Jesus says, if somebody makes you carry his bag a mile, when you get to 1,199, 1,200, say, can I carry your bag another mile, please, sir? And he says, why? And you say, because... This thing hasn't really fixed my heart yet. I've got to do another 1,200 before it changes me. I'm still, I'm still struggling with my attitude. So he says, double it. Double the giving. Don't measure. Don't look for returns. Don't make it conditional. Imagine what every marriage would be like if the two people in every marriage said, I'm going to outdo you in showing you honor. I'm going to love you more than you love me. I'm going I'm to love you into oblivion. You won't see me for dust. I'm going to make you so, so important that I will be invisible. That's how much I'm going to love you. And then she goes, no, no, no. I'm going to love you more. You go, okay, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Okay, okay. Let's, I'll see you at the end of the year. Let's see who loves the other one more. Imagine what marriages would be like if we were doing that instead of entitlement. If we were doing generosity instead of entitlement. Imagine what what neighborhoods, what towns would be like if families said, our family is going to make more positive change in this community than the next doors. Imagine what South Africa would be like if if people who have taken the kingdom culture say, you know, us, whiteies, We're going to give back much more than anyone can ever demand. So that it will not be a matter of, let's wait for another TRC where restitution is demanded of us. Where farms are taken away. I'm now really treading on thin, thin ice. Where instead of waiting for the moment that it is taken away, we begin now to think in terms of how can I pay back something, whether 
my father did it or not. It's not about whether my father did anything. It's not about whether my, you know, which political party I voted for during the apartheid years. It's not about that. It's about another culture that has come and that transcends this and says, you know what, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to be uh, ov- overly generous. And in fact, to the point where Jesus says, don't even tell anybody about it. Don't blow your trumpet and say, hey, I gave more than the other oaks. Being proactively generous. So, in other words, Jesus is saying here, do you know how society is so harsh? How people are so entitled? How they are so violent? How they are so greedy? Do you like that? He's going, do you like that? And you go, no, it's not really nice. It's not nice to live in a country where everybody's like trying to keep one another away from what we have. And don't rub up against me because it makes me uncomfortable. He says, be the change you want to see. Be the change. And guys, don't wait for... Don't wait for the pagans to start doing this. It's not in them. It's not in them. Juan Ortiz many years ago said, Do not be surprised if a blind man bump into you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if violent people do violence. Don't be surprised if Cruel people do cruelty. Everybody gets so outraged. They say, look at what they're doing. It's their nature. It's the nature. of. That's why the only people who can change this country are people who have been personally changed by the culture of the kingdom of God. The spirit of God has to change us from the inside out. But don't leave it on the inside. Let it go all the way out. Let it go to where people you meet go, wow, what's happened to you? So finally, I want us to look at staying spicy. Very simply. How to stay spicy. How to shine in in darkness. The first principle is let Jesus live it out. Okay, Understand that this is not about you. It's about Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's about Christ... Living his life through you. That's the beauty of this gospel. That's why I I say it over and over again. You will. You will. You will. Not you must, you ought, you should. You will. That's Paul's mantra. Paul's statement. That goes, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives through me. Christ lives in me and through me. And he says it. Uh, like this, he said, uh, the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The love that I show is not mine, it's His shining through me. The forgiveness that I give others is not mine, it's His that radiates through me. It's not don't, but do. It's the good deeds that allow God's life to shine outward. That's what glory means. Life overflowing. Giving God glory. Letting His life overflow. Second of all, let Jesus take you deeper. So all of us can, be, can, can well do this. That we should look at how we live, how we spend our time, how we use our money, how we interact with others, and ask questions. Like, has this brought about, is this an expression of attitudes that supersede all of those that I was raised into, that my culture requires of me, or that my culture shapes me into? And even my religious culture. Jonathan will remember a time when we were part of a different 
denomination who um, followed the, um, the rules very well. They followed the rules to the extent that instead of being one church, we were the black section and the white section and the colored and Indian section. And the three never met, except at conferences. And then they would sit in the black section and the white section and the colored and Indian section. And God had kind of met me and overpowered me and smashed me to the ground and slapped me upside the head and said, what on earth are you doing bringing the world into my church? And so I repented. After some bruising, I repented. And then I went to a conference (laughs) and I had some friends who were in the other section, (laughs) you see. Lovely man called Nick Masupi. And I said, Nick, I'm not doing what this denomination requires. They they had the white dining room. So so I went and I said, I want to eat with you. So I went and stood in the queue. (laughs) Waiting for the real food, you know, because the black people, the thing was, they kept us whites out of there because their food was better. Anyway, I went and stood in the queue, waiting for my sadza and my putu and uh, nyama. And, uh, And there was outrage. I was hauled before the Sanhedrin. Because... You're disrupting something that has worked perfectly for many years. I said, it may work for you. It certainly doesn't work for me. It, ha- it also happened to be the last conference I ever attended in that denomination, but not because of that. I wasn't thrown out. I was... Yeah. So, our rituals and our, com- our kind of... Uh, Automatic habits, our habitual responses, we need to bring them before God and say, you got anything to say about this? Is there anything on the inside that's changing my attitude toward this? And don't just simply regurgitate what your parents said and what your teacher said and what is, what is the, the subject of, uh, of the dinner table conversations. Don't just regurgitate that. Let's be different. Because this kingdom is very different. From rights, from ritual to relationship, from rights to responsibility, from entitlement to integrity. Jesus said, you have heard, but I say to you, the old, the old rules were fine for then, but this is now. And now I'm introducing you to something that is going to turn this world upside down. Finally, let love lead you further. Instead of looking for vengeance, to turn the other cheek. Instead of, uh, you know, paying only the amount, go to the next mile. Instead of just enjoying um, my own culture, start to enjoy the cultural tapestry, the diversity that God has Made. You, know what, you know what the church in heaven is like? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation standing together before the throne and singing one song in all their languages and everybody understood the worship that was happening. And they celebrated it together. Let love lead you to win the love contest. Jesus said it, summed it up like this in Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 48. He says, I, this is how the, you've been taught. This is what I say to you. This is how you've been, the, this is the behavior change that you've been told to do. Now I'm telling you I'm going to do an attitude change. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, be perfect, just like your dad. Be a chip off the old block. Be different. Give away. Be outrageous. Be extravagant with your love for others.
So I, I want us to finish with a, with a prayer, if we can do that. Well, should we stand? And as we do this, I, w- I want to invite you for, to um, make your responses in your own hearts, but also if you need, if you would like someone to pray with you, um, there will be opportunity for that as well. I know that time is gone, and so we'll start this off, and then if you need to leave, you'll be very welcome to do that. Father, I want to thank you for the grace that there is in this life that you've given us. That it's a grace that doesn't just accept us, but it's a grace that changes us. I want to thank you for a culture that has come that supersedes our cultures. And that actually is a blanket under which all of us can find warmth and shelter. if we'll learn to share it, if, if we'll learn to let it be our greatest, strongest identity. So I welcome you. Today we've heard, as we've been singing some beautiful songs of worship, we've heard about the price that Jesus paid so that we could have this change, this internal change. And if, you, if you're here and you heard those songs and you may have even tried to sing along with them, but they were not your story yet. They've not been, you've not had that story. You would like to participate in this grace. You'd like someone to show you how. It's a simple thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a prayer that you pray. And I'm going to lead you. If there's anyone that would like to, would you just raise your hand? People are not looking around, but you can raise your hand to say, yes, include me in that prayer. I want to enter in to the grace that we've been singing about. I want to receive the sacrifice of Jesus. I want to receive the life that actually changes me, makes me not just follow a religious set of rules but changes me from the inside out. A couple of hands have gone up. Keep them up for a moment, please. Anyone else? So, for those people particularly, I want to pray. And as we pray, you, you, can, um, you can share this prayer with me. So, Pray this prayer with me from your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your gift, the gift of your life, your blood shed for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you that you rose from the dead so that you may say to me, it's done. The sacrifice is accepted. You can be a child of God. Thank you, Lord, that you are mine. I receive you. I open my heart. And I say, come in. Not just to be added to my life, but to change my life. To be the Lord of my life. I welcome you. prayed that prayer for the first time today, I want to uh, ask you to, um, before you leave today, speak to someone. Maybe you you can come to the front as we close to, um, to ask someone to pray with you, to just consolidate that commitment that you've made and make this the day of new beginnings, the beginning of a new life. Um... But before we go now, I also want to pray for the rest of us, for those of us who may know Jesus, but who are maybe facing some of the, some of the obstacles of the translation of my life into a life 
that submits itself, that surrenders itself to kingdom culture. I had a sense once again of some of you who are feeling a sense of hopelessness, of pessimism about yourself and about maybe the country and about things in the country. And I just have a sense of God wanting to lift your face. He is your glory and the lifter of your head, one who will cause you to look at the darkest night and know there's a light that is that that darkness cannot overcome, can never put out. So if, if you feel like you need a, a dose of the hope that is shed abroad in our hearts by God's Holy Spirit, just lift your hands as well. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. I welcome you to every heart, to every home, to every family, to every place where despair has grown. And I say no to despair. I say that darkness cannot overcome your light. I pray let your light penetrate. Lord Jesus Christ, come. Come and fill these hearts. Come and be like that, that sun that came into the cave. And suddenly there was no more dark. There was no more damp. There was no more shadows. There was no more pohos. But everything was banished because the sun came. So, Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your rich salvation. We welcome you. Welcome you to these lives, these homes, these circumstances. And Lord, really, really, we want to say to you, I'm willing to be the change I want to see. To be the change I want to see in society. Thank you. Susan Brooks. The doctors have given her a couple of months to live. And so we hold her up. And the families come from all over the world, from England and from America, to be with her. And Lord Jesus, we cry to you for her today. We pray for them as a family as they gather together. I pray for healing to happen even within the family. But Lord, we pray also for Susan. We pray in this time that she would find you afresh. That she would know that she faces life and death with you. And that you are in it all. Now we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There will be no fear because you are with her. And so, Lord, we even at this late stage, we pray. And we pray for healing. We lift her up to your grace and we all say, Jesus, be healed. Be healed in Jesus' name. Heal her, Lord. Heal her. May these tumors wither and die. Lord, we have nowhere else to turn but to you. And we turn to the creator of the heavens and the universe. We spoke by words and said, let there be. And so we ask for you to speak words of healing to Susan even thus. Lord Jesus. sense that the Lord is saying there is healing in the room and uh, so I'm going to finish like this and say if you would like prayer for healing I had a couple of little impressions one was about a, um, a, uh, a, a thyroid issue um, and I think it is in fact an underactive thyroid um, but it might also be an overactive one and then the other one was someone with, a, with trouble uh, swallowing. You've got a 
a problem with the, the swallow reflex and it's actually painful for you to swallow. Um, so there were those two things. And then someone that has recently um, manifested a, pain, a very painful hip. I think it's the right hip. And uh, there's inflammation going on there that you don't even know what the source is. But it's been extremely painful in the last um, couple of weeks. There may be other uh, conditions that, um, that you would like prayer for. Um, but anyone raise your hand about uh, those three things that I've just mentioned? Okay. Will you come forward and let's um, call the ministry team in this church forward to come and pray with people? Um, and, uh, and then any other person who has a need for prayer, please come and uh, we'll close with this while the rest of you